Welcome to the All Dogs Are Good Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Dick from Pack Leader Health, and today we're going to be making sense of dog behavior and dog training for the everyday dog person. Okay, hi, Pack. Thank you for listening. I'm really excited for this podcast today. I've wanted to do this podcast for a very long time, and I worked up the courage to ask my pal and client or former client, Tina, with her dog Cosmo, to join us. They have a really special story. I've really connected with them over the past. It's been a little over three years now that um, that we had worked together and Tina adopted a dog back during COVID. And, you know, he was not an easy dog. He was what I think a lot of people might consider a somewhat difficult dog, not in the sense that he was overly aggressive or insanely reactive, but Cosmo's highly sensitive and he really needed someone who was incredibly patient to help work through some of the insecurities and the fears that he had. And welcome, Tina. I mean, she really turned his life around. And I know that she has a lot of wisdom that she can um, give to the audience and anyone listening and any of my followers who are maybe currently struggling or feel like there's not really a light at the end of the tunnel for their sensitive dog's behavior. And I know Tina has, she's just I mean, she's a great trainer. That's really what it is. So I'm going to welcome Tina Schrader now. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, after that introduction, I feel like I have, you have set high expectations for today, so we'll see if I can meet them. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your story with Cosmo, how you got him, um, maybe a little bit more about his background and what that looked like. Sure. So I I adopted Cosmo in June of 2020. Um, actually, he came home to me on July 3rd of 2020. At that point in the pandemic where everybody was adopting dogs, Mm-hmm. And so there were very few dogs available from rescue agencies or shelters or anything, and they were just going through really quickly. And what I know about Cosmo's background is that he was picked up as a stray in South Carolina in April of 2020. He was about six years old at that point. Um, And so he came to a rescue in Virginia um, in June of that year, and I brought him home on July 3rd. So he went through the cycle from being picked up off the street to being in the adoptable queue at a rescue up here in a very short period of time. And once I got him home and he started to decompress a little bit (laughs) I realized that he had I feel like he got kind of rushed through that process and he was not really ready to be in a home yet um you know he and and I think that to a large extent was a function of just the situation the world was in at that time. You know, I don't necessarily think the rescue did anything wrong or, or that I did anything 
wrong um, beyond the fact that I made an emotional decision to adopt him because I had seen like three other dogs that I was interested in get adopted out while I was yeah. waiting to be approved by the rescue agency as an adopter. And then when I saw Cosmo, I was like, I made the decision to adopt him basically based on a photograph. And when I met him, like he was okay. Yeah. You know, there weren't any really troubling signs to me with what I knew at that point in his behavior on the day that I met him. Um, looking back at it now with the knowledge that I have yeah. about dogs or that I've developed about dog behavior over the last couple of years, sure. I realized I that, that he was, that he was shut down and scared where adopters in that first like meeting, my dog was but he didn't act out for the first and second week or the first time I met them at the foster's house or at the rescue, they were just like quiet right. and to themselves, people not realizing that that's not a reflection of who that dog is. They are, especially the rescues around here. It's usually like, Hey, right. we got a street dog or we got a dog from down South. We pumped them up, you know, to Virginia and very quickly they're on to an adopter's house and they're just so overwhelmed that they're shut down and yeah. people make adoption decisions based on that shutdown dog, not realizing that there is a whole onion to peel back of different behaviors essentially once that dog gets a little bit more comfortable in their home yeah and and that was exactly the experience I had with Cosmo um I mean I'm gonna take a little sidetrack here and say that I grew up with dogs mm -hmm. um as a kid we always had dogs but I lived on a farm and the dogs that we had typically lived outside and as long as they didn't bite people or you know kill livestock they were just allowed to run around and be dogs yeah and when i got cosmo i i was not prepared for what having a dog in the city would be like mm -hmm. and what behavioral consequences for dogs there are in the amount of constraints that we put on them for city life. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit more about that. Like, what specifically did you start to notice about Cosmo early on living in the city with him and just his behavior in general? Yeah, so, so like the second or third walk that I took him on, you know, after he had been here for probably not even a full day at that point, we walked, there was another dog on the street a block away and he completely lost his little mind and, you know, barking and lunging and, and it terrified me because I was like, oh my goodness, have I got a vicious dog on my hands? Like, yeah. is, is he going to try to attack every other dog we meet? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, short, short answer was no. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the short answer is no, that, that is not the case. <laughs> um, but in that moment, like, I didn't know what I was dealing with. And I had... When I was finalizing the adoption paperwork with the rescue 
group. They had told me at that point, oh, we found out that Cosmo does have a bite history with a vet tech in South Carolina, so we would recommend that you work with a trainer. And they gave me your contact information, for which I am eternally grateful. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I am very grateful for that. Um, and so I... I contacted you within the first few days that I got him home um, in part because of what they told me and then in part because of the experiences I was having with him on walks where he was really reactive to other people and dogs and a whole range of, of city life stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's so hard to believe now that we're reflecting back on when I first met you guys, like where he was, just because I'm used to the Cosmo I see today, who's really, I mean, with you guys, he's, he's cool, calm, and collective, and he's out and about at this right. point, right? With, mi with minimal support from, from you. Um, so that was probably a big shocker, and I know, like, just looking through our, our emails recently, I was like, oh, yeah, you, you contacted me very soon after getting him, <laughs> essentially. So when we... Yeah. When we first started working together, I guess looking back now, because obviously we covered a lot of different topics to help with Cosmo because he was like a shutdown and sensitive. I remember one of the first times I think I was there, you were really concerned about the fact that he had previously, you weren't like overly concerned, but you're like, hey, I think muzzle conditioning is a good idea. And I was like, yeah, like we should probably mm -hmm. do that. And, you know, he was just so tense. He was a very, very tense dog. And um, the, the more exciting we got, the more kind of shut down he got. And so he really challenged me as a trainer because I'm so used to a different type of dog, even though I deal with sensitive dogs. He really was like, Brianna, you're going to you're too much. Your, your personality's too much. Your energy's too much. You really need to slow down. And it wasn't until much later that like working with you that your personality, the speed in which you go through life, and just I think like your your aura, your energy was so much of what he needed, which is very rare. But like looking back on our training together, what did you take from that? And maybe what do you wish could have been done differently or discussed differently? So I think I went into training thinking, you know, he needs to learn, you know, obedience commands. Like I need to teach him to sit by my side when another dog walks by and to, you know, not move. And when you came into the house on that first appointment, I remember you said something about we're not going to worry about if he knows commands or tricks or obedience. We're going to focus on how he feels about things mm -hmm. and changing that. And that was such a revelation to me. Like I had never thought about the fact that a dog's behavior is a reflection of what they think and what they feel about the world around them 
and just, you know, they're not robots that you just put in a position and then they're going to stay there until you tell them to do something different. And that completely changed my thinking about what I was trying to do with him in the first place to, I just, I'm going to manage his environment and try to make him feel okay about the world. Yeah. And if he happens to learn some obedience commands along the way, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, I really want other people and other pet parents and dog owners to hear that because it was a revelation for me too even though when you say it it's like oh yeah that's that should be common sense right it's like makes total sense but we don't really think about that because that's not because even for ourselves we're not viewing our outward actions as necessarily a reflection of how we're feeling it's like hey I don't want you to I don't want you to yell you know but it's like okay but there's a feeling behind that yelling let's not just address the yelling let's address the feeling behind it and that was right. something that I only adapted much later in my, you know, training career, just because, you know, I was taught with mentors and classes and stuff about obedience and being able to focus and manage the environment and really try and address through counter conditioning and desensitizing and, you know, potentially adding in trick training as like a fun tool for him was really what we needed to do. But it was, I know it was a really, really hard work for you. So looking back now, you know, when I tell clients to do all of these things, one thing I've really taken from you is making sure that I let people know consistently that some of the management tools that we're doing with the dog, like, you know, creating them or keeping them on leash in the house or muzzling them, that's not ideally forever for for most of the dogs I'm working with. So talk to me a little bit more about that, like what management looked like for you guys. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, it was, um, you know, I would keep Cosmo crated in the house for you know, a few hours in the morning while I was working, we would go out at lunchtime, we would do a little training, he would go back in his crate for the afternoon. And that was to make sure he was getting enough rest. Mm -hmm. Because you pointed out to me that that dogs need a lot of sleep. And when he was out of his crate, he would tend to kind of pace Um, and so giving him that structured crate time, even when I was home, would just make sure he got enough rest and that helped him, you know, gradually learn to relax when he was out of the crate. And like, I would gradually kind of extend the amount of time that he was out of his crate. And we worked on things like a place command, um, and, and, you know, eventually it got to the point where he would hang out on his dog bed in my office while I was working. And that's what he does now pretty much all day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I love that there is, I think oftentimes there's this black and white, we're creating or we're not creating or we're using place or we're not using place, but there always has to be a, you know, slow progression towards providing the most autonomy and freedom to the dog. 
And I think for, it's hard. Like all of this is really hard. Um, I think that you're in a unique position. Some of my other clients have, you know, young kids or they have in-laws living there. I mean, there's so many moving parts, but it sounds like from what you've shared, you've been, you were really able to focus time and attention on, you know, progressively weaning off of what I would consider like training wheels. Like the crate is great, but at some point it can sort of become a crutch or training wheels. And we want to wean off of that. So that way he can live, you know, almost a fully autonomous life in in the home, essentially. Right. I mean, what it, what it came down to for me was managing his environment and, you know, using the crate, using, you know, place beds and keeping him on a leash in the house until I felt like we had done enough work together and he had gained enough confidence that I could trust him to make good decisions in Mm -hmm. a particular context. And then gradually sort of broadening what those contexts were to, okay, I can, I can leave him out of his crate in the house and not have to do a lot of management when he's just in the house with me. Can I do the same thing in our tiny little backyard for 20 minutes at a time? Mm -hmm. You know, and then can, you know, can we extend that to, we're gonna sit out on the front porch where there's people walking by on the sidewalk. (laughs) Yeah, so um, can you, just so other people sort of get a good idea, can you walk me through almost like a timeline of how long a lot of these things took you and Cosmo to accomplish? So I would say that getting him to the point where I could leave him out of the crate pretty much all day um, and he would hang out on his bed in my home office. Now, I did have the advantage of this was during the height of COVID and I was not going anywhere or seeing anybody and nobody was coming to my house. <laughs> yeah. So I had nothing but time to devote to the dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that took us maybe two months, three months at the very most. Um, until he was comfortable in the house and, and, you know, not pacing inordinately. I mean, he was never a really hard dog in terms of his behavior in the house. Right. Um, so that piece of it was easy. Getting him comfortable on walks around the neighborhood getting him to the point where I didn't have to cross the street every time I saw another dog coming toward us took between six months and a year probably and there was still some remedial work going on after that like distance is a big factor for him in reactivity as well as like how the other dog is acting toward him sure um so there are still there are still contexts when we're out 
on walks and I will see another dog and I'm just like, mm, nope, that's going to turn into a bad situation and I'll create distance for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just remember that something we haven't talked about yet is that Cosmo stayed with me for a board and train. This was, I think a year or so after we initially right. had worked together. Um, right. Cosmo had stayed with me for a little while and we part of it was a board and train but part of it was just boarding because right. Tina was doing some renovations and she wanted to make sure that Cosmo was in a comfortable environment and also he was with a larger male dog which um he wasn't you know always a huge fan of these I had my large Bernie's mountain dog named Artie that really loved Cosmo and Cosmo learned to except <laughs> he was never like Cosmo was never like super spicy or like he was never trying to like bite other dogs uh, really he just you know because of how sensitive he was he preferred you know my smaller dog Iris who is closer in size to him whereas Artie is big and rambunctious I'm pretty sure he was unneutered at the time um and what I learned about Cosmo he I had done hundreds and hundreds of board and trains and I know Tina's heard this so many times before but I had done hundreds of board and trains prior to Cosmo and he was one of my last in-home board and trains before I stopped doing board and trains and he was the only dog I've had at my home who was happier in with the owner Meaning any other dog I've had, they view my house as like Brianna's party house. We're going to have so much fun together. It's going to be amazing. And even though I know Cosmo loved me and he enjoyed his time there and he learned some things, he was always way more thrilled, content to be with Tina. And that just, it just went, goes to show like how much he connected with you, how much he trusted you on such a high level that I really hadn't experienced that before. You know, I was salty too. Cause I was like, you know, you've lived, you know, what I'm so used to dogs liking me more basically. Um, but you know, he, he just, you light up his world really. Um, so I yeah. just think that's an interesting tidbit for people to hear that um, as a dog trainer, I like to think I can make any dog like the happiest, but um Cosmo just you know Tina had developed so much trust with Cosmo that he really just enjoyed her presence the most well I mean I'm I'm really touched to hear you say that I mean I know we've talked about that before um but it just affirms for me that what I have done for him and the life I've created for him has been to his benefit and that's really the most important thing to me <laughs> yeah absolutely so I know we also wanted to talk about you um have learned a lot online outside of just um working with me so right. talk to me about some of the online resources maybe you wish you had or um hope you hope to see in the future for dogs like Cosmo who are very sensitive and are not the ones who are going to respond very well to maybe the type of training that's out there right now yeah so so i did i have spent a lot of time you know online looking for dog training resources both early on when we were working together i mean and even now and i've i've taken to following a lot of dog trainers on youtube and instagram <laughs> and other social media platforms and 
And I realized early on that the techniques that they were offering, the demonstrations that they were doing for social media platforms just didn't really apply to Cosmo because they were all about like, we have these dogs that are overexcited and they're jumping on people and they're just so happy to meet people or, you know, they're lunging and they're aggressive and they're really just hard to handle. And, you know, you have to be really animated and up and, you know, taking up a lot of space in order to influence these dogs that are maybe overconfident or, you know, overexcited or jumpy or whatever. And Cosmo is not that dog. The more animated and excited I would get in working with him, the more he would shut down and back away from me. And so... I realized that, you know, I could take techniques like, um, you know, the general idea of positive reinforcement and luring or, you know, some of those specific techniques from, from trainers online, but I really had to adapt them and tone them down mm-hmm. to work with Cosmo. Like everything had to be just soft (laughs) and mellow for him. (laughs) Do you have any, just so maybe, and I can tag this in the show notes as well, but are there any specific trainers or maybe pages that you thought were really helpful in teaching or luring or doing any of the things that you're discussing right now? So Two of the pages that I have found particularly useful, not for training techniques exactly, but for understanding dog behavior and dog body language, Mm -hmm. are Thinking Canine and I think it's JW Training. Oh, yes. Uh, Juliana, JW. Yeah. She's yeah. actually close by. Um, she, yeah. was, she lives in Leesburg now, but those are those they definitely have some good posts on um, understanding maybe why and understanding the dog and the body language a bit more, too. Yeah. I mean, another another resource that I used early on was I picked up this book called Constructional Aggression Treatment which is is aimed at dogs that really have severe like human or dog aggression issues mm-hmm. but there is this chapter in it on learning to observe your dog and understanding very subtle cues of dog body language like you know, and, and the exercise is, you know, you're going to take your dog out and you're just going to watch what they do for a period of time. And you're going to take notes like his head came up, his ears pricked forward, his tail came up, he's wagging it a little bit. 
And eventually, you know, when you start observing all of these little discrete pieces of dog body language, you can start putting together the patterns mm -hmm. that mean your dog is building up to a reaction. Yes. So that's where CAT is what it's the acronym for conditional can what is it called i forget the instructional yeah, aggression training yes, yes, I know. <laughs> um i'm just so used to saying cat at this point but that's where you know something like that is all about bringing awareness just like for you know, behavior modification within ourselves, we can't address an issue without first being aware of maybe what the issue is or what's building up to it. And right. I think, you know, before we get into some of the other topics, we can discuss how much our own behavior, you know, influences our dogs and being able to observe, pause, be still, and just take a look at our dogs, it takes time. And yep. time is a resource that, especially in the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, this is a very fast paced area to live. You know, people are working nine to fives and then five to nines. And yep. then, you know, they have someone cleaning their house. They have someone nannying their kids. Um, and so even being able to just stop and observe your dog, it's almost, this is, there's so much scarcity there to even be able to do that. Um, but it's, it's necessary, especially if you're getting a dog from a rescue and you don't know the genetic background, or maybe you don't know the behavioral history or anything like that you're in for a roller coaster ride because you you just don't know what it's going to be and you're going to have to take the time to get to know your dog on i mean you really do just have to become a dog trainer at, at some point with dogs like this dogs who have severe behavioral concerns yeah um so you know that sort of brings me into what you what we sort of discussed which is how how you were feeling and how that affected Cosmo when you guys were working together. Like how, um, when did you start to notice maybe your effect on his behavior when you adopted him? So I noticed that very early on, like the first time I don't know. I mean, I think I was trying to teach him some stupid trick, like lay down <laughs> or roll over, you know, and I had seen, you know, YouTube video of, you know, this is how you lure them and you get really excited. And, and so he started to do what I was asking him to do. And I delivered a treat and I was like, oh, good boy, good boy, good boy. And, you know, being really animated. And he shrank down and like slunk away from me. And I was like, okay, that was not the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he told you right off the bat that that's that yeah. work for him. <laughs> and so, I mean, that was really that was the moment when I was like, okay, he needs a different approach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. And from there, I mean, it really was just trial or an error. And, you know, 
paying attention to the things that he liked, which at that point was food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because even getting him to want to, um, getting him to want to play, when I always tell owners, when we have our dogs who are sort of shut down, anxious, scared, overwhelmed, they are burdened with that. A lot of their emotional energy is going to being scared and alert mm -hmm. and or just shut down. And as we start to peel back the layers and build confidence, there, we usually make room for more playfulness and joy. Now, not every dog has a lot of play drive, um, depending on, you know, the breed, genetics, whatever it might be. But we do get a little bit more playfulness because that's something that they're like, well, I really want them to play fetch. They just don't want to fetch. And I'm like, we're, we're a long ways off. We, we have to let them know that they don't have to be scared of the world first. And then they maybe yeah. want to play fetch a little bit more. Um, yeah. But as far as like how you handled reactivity on the walk, um, I, I don't do this anymore, but I used to for homework for my clients, I used to send them breath work videos. Um, and I sort of realized that I was probably barking up the wrong tree for nine out of 10 of my clients. So I, I stopped doing it, but you sort of brought up things that you did for yourself to help manage your emotions when you were yeah. dealing with maybe high stress situations of being in a city where you can't just totally avoid other dogs. You have to see them. Um, what helped you? How did you, how did you help yourself there? Yeah. So, so I have been a yoga practitioner for a long time now. And one of the things that I realized early on when when I had Cosmo out in the environment, you know, in the city and, and he was tense and I would catch myself, you know, seeing potential triggers and then I would get tense and, you know, my breathing would get shallow and, and he would then be like, oh, what's she upset about? What do I need to be concerned about? And we would kind of create this, awful feedback loop <laughs> between yeah. each other and I found myself kind of consciously bringing a lot of my yoga practice into my walks with Cosmo where the first thing I would try to remember to do when I saw a trigger that I thought he might react to was take a deep breath and get myself calmed down before I tried to deal with anything that he might do and when yeah. I started doing that regularly it made a real difference in how I was able to interact with him and how I was able to manage his feelings about the environment because I wasn't freaking out either <laughs> yeah yeah so I mean and that's where I if I'm hearing you correctly you had you had basically you know mastered in some context um these the yoga practices or even doing breath work or things like that or right. breathing techniques and you were really just starting to utilize them on the walk so for anyone listening just like with reactivity, you don't want to wait to try that out when there's something stressful. Definitely practice that at home first and right. sort of get used to that. I do a lot of box 
breathing, um, just because it's a simple and helpful way for me to. So that's just like breathing in for four seconds, holding for four, four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, and then holding again. Um, that's like the one that I always go to because I practice it the most, but I definitely find it helpful when I'm going into a home where I know a dog is going to yeah. wrap their legs around me and try and bite me, <laughs> you know, things like that. I definitely, you have to help your nervous system because your dog can really tell like when your heart rate spikes and your hormones and your, your stress that the dog can smell all of that. They're not immune to that. Um, and it's easier said than done. Right. I can just say, Hey, be calm, do some breath work. Uh, but it's, it's not that simple. Well, Um, it's like any other skill you have to practice it. And, and this applies to dog training too. You have to practice it in an environment where it's easy and you can turn it into an automatic kind of muscle memory sort of thing and then expand the context in which you can do it until you can do it in more challenging environments. Yeah, that's And it's the same process that, that you go through when you're teaching your dog a new skill. <laughs> Yes, I'm just going to be a great soundbite, what you just shared there. Thank you so much for that. That was good. Um, So knowing what you know now about Cosmo and the training process and the rescue process, what would you change, if anything, like looking back? And what sort of advice would you have for someone who either has adopted a dog with behavioral concerns or is thinking about going through a rescue? So... There are there are sort of two two main points that I would make about this. The first is when you're thinking about adopting a dog. I know, I know the tendency is to make an emotional decision based on what the dog looks like, or you know how you might have interacted in a first meeting, or something like that. But it really is going to be to your benefit, especially if you are not someone who wants to spend a ton of time on training and behavior modification and that kind of thing with your dog. If you just want a dog you can live with right off the bat, meet the dog in multiple environments, in multiple contexts, and really think about what kind of life you want to have with your dog and then whether the dog you're looking at is going to be the dog you can have that life with yeah so that's the first piece of advice i would offer to somebody who's thinking about adopting a dog the second piece of advice that i would offer once you've gotten a dog and you are committed to that dog is forget everything you thought you wanted and look (laughs) at the dog you have in front of you and make a life with that dog. (laughs) Yeah. Tina, that's so beautiful. I'm really glad that you shared that. Um, I think we all, when we get an animal, we, even me, I have an expectation of who I'd like for them to be. Um, And you prolong the progression in your relationship when you don't let go of that expectation, when you come to acceptance with, of who the dog you have is, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, let severe behavioral concerns just, Oh, that's just who they are. It just means 
okay, this isn't the dog maybe I thought I was getting or maybe I hoped I wanted, but this is the dog I have and I need to enjoy them for who they are. Because like you mentioned, they're not a robot. We're not just going to mold and shape them into this beautiful, perfect dog. Um, Training and behavior modification can do a lot, but it's never going to fundamentally change a dog. And any trainer who's promising that they can get specific results with a dog, I would really shy away from um, because they're likely going to do things that are, in my opinion, either unethical or inhumane to get the dog to comply. So the the acceptance of who your dog is, is is really important in just, you know, being able to enjoy them essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, an example of that is, you know, I, I had this picture in my head of, oh, when I have a dog, I'm going to be able to take him out to the park and we're going to play fetch and, and, you know, he's going to be happy and running around. And I, I have taught Cosmo to play fetch. He (laughs) knows how to do it. He will do it. He does it because I pay him to do it with food. Right, right, right. <laughs> he doesn't like to play fetch just it's, to play fetch. It's transactional. And <laughs> af- after a certain period of time, I I realized why why am I asking him to do this? Yeah, yeah. He, de- you know, he's not doing it because he wants to do it. He's doing it because I have conditioned this behavior in him, and then. I, I asked myself, you know, why, why am I doing this? I'm not doing it for him. I'm doing it for me. And is that the best possible thing for him or for both of us? Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and then I just stopped because there's no point. Right, right. There's a, there's not a lot of joy that's coming out of that. And you just sort of accepted, okay, like this is very transactional for him in that scenario. So um, I know we've sort of talked about you potentially like a future dog, um, maybe wanting to go to a breeder or something like that. So mm-hmm. where is your head at with that? Like, because, and why would you want to go to a breeder versus getting from a rescue again? So... One of the things that that Cosmo, like his his approach to the world is every new thing is scary. And I would very much like for my next dog to be a dog that is predisposed to approach the world with curiosity instead of fear. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a tough thing to know about any dog that's coming out of a rescue or a shelter environment. I mean, maybe if I did some sort of foster to adopt kind of arrangement, um, I could learn that about a dog. Yeah. But it's harder. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I feel like with, with a breeder, with a puppy, I can get to know the line that they are producing. I can meet other puppies with that same genetic background. I can meet other grown dogs with that same genetic background and get a sense of 
what their personality is going to, what predispositions they're going to have because of their genetics. Yeah. And use that and conditioning to like develop the, the kind of dog that I would like to have. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally fair. And obviously my position on rescue versus breeding has changed um, a lot over the past 10 years, just when I worked in rescue. So what I tell owners is, especially people who have families, if you have particular traits that you really need or desire from a dog, your best route is to find a really ethical and, and phenomenal breeder, which is not easy. It's hard. Right. Um, but yeah. if you're like, I'm fine with a blank slate, I am cool to do behavior modification if necessary. I don't really have many expectations other than to find a dog that I can love. Then the rescue is a good, is good route. Yeah. But I mean, not saying that you can't get a, a bad dog from a breeder, but it's the likelihood is a lot less when you've found someone who is looking at pedigree and health and temperament genetics for, you know, a very extended period of time. So yeah. to, to wrap it up, I, um, knowing what you know now, what are, if you were like to break down three to four things that really stuck out to you, maybe like pillars or foundational things that transformed your relationship and your life with Cosmo, what would those be? I think, I think the first and most important thing was just acknowledging him as a creature with thoughts and feelings and understanding that that what I was doing with him was not training him to do certain behaviors. It was developing a relationship with him. And then the the training part happened as a byproduct of the relationship. I love that. Um, so I think if more people understood that, mm -hmm. they would have happier lives with their dogs. <laughs> yes, I would. I definitely <laughs> and obviously agree with that. What would be sort of your next pillar there? Um, don't be afraid to use food yeah. to motivate your dog. I, there there seems to be a lot of controversy in the dog training community about whether it's okay to use food. And I think, you know, you should, you should use what your dog likes to motivate them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think, and to caveat that just very quickly, because I know we're summing it up here, but food is information. Not only is it motivation, but it's also information. And the more information we provide our dogs, the better they're going to be. Now we can always, you know, working with a trainer, you can always talk about, but how do I wean off of this information, whether that's food or, or structure in the home or whatever it is, that's a fair question. But for someone who's like, we're not going to use any food at all, um, raise an eyebrow, take, take a closer look there. Yeah. And and maybe your last and final pillar, or if you have more than one, I'm happy to happy to share those. You know, I think I think 
pay attention to your own emotional state when you're dealing with your dog. And if you find yourself getting frustrated, take a break. Like not everything has to happen at once and it's okay to, you know, if you're working on a particular behavior and it's just not going well, just stop for a little while. Do something else with your dog, something you both enjoy and then come back to it when you're in a better state. Like if I had not been able to do that at various points with Cosmo, like the frustration would just build. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because it's hard. I mean, it, it's hard. You Managing your own emotions when you're dealing with an animal who's having their own very intense emotional reaction is really hard. So being able to check yourself is so fundamental when yeah. we're doing, you know, behavior modification or, or really any type of training. Um, any final thoughts you want to add? I don't think so. I feel like we have covered a lot of ground yes I think in this conversation so uh, well I just want to thank you so much Tina for joining me for this I know that so many people are going to I just already know the messages that are going to flood in from this because anytime I, I do a podcast like this I get so much amazing feedback and I appreciate you sharing your story and just being you know a phenomenal client of mine it's just been a joy to get to know both you and Cosmo. Well, thank you. This this was a lot of fun and I am I can talk forever about Cosmo and about training and behavior. This is lots of fun for me. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope this episode was helpful for you. If it was, or if you're a new listener, or you enjoyed any of my other episodes, I would so appreciate it if you would give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This allows me to keep this podcast free and continue doing this so I can help other owners. If you're like, mm, don't have time for that, it would be insanely helpful if you gave it a share. That way, other owners who need help or other trainers who are looking for a new perspective can get some here with us. Have a great week.